0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 51 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. In this episode, which is a special guest episode, I talk with Kimberly Brown, the author of a new book called Steady, Calm, and Brave 25 Practices of Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis. This is a book that can be a helpful handbook as we continue. To navigate through the pandemic and all the related and additional traumas that 2020 has heaped upon us. Now, Kimberly is no stranger to trauma, coming from a painful childhood as an adoptee and growing up with an alco- alcoholic parent. And this led her to discover healthy ways of dealing with anxiety, feelings of unworthiness panic attacks, sadness, and anger. As she puts it, she, quote, recovered her natural state of well-being by practicing both traditional Buddhist techniques and modern psychotherapeutic modalities, unquote. Practices that she now leads others through in meditation and mind-body therapy. And she calls that, leading them to deeply engage with all aspects of their experience for integration, wholeness, and authenticity. Kimberly is a certified mindfulness teacher and student of Buddhism, and she's based in New York City. She has been leading classes, workshops, and retreats since 2011 with a teaching focus that incorporates body-based mindfulness, and self-compassion practices. You can find out more about her at her website, www.meditationwithheart.com. That's meditation with heart, all lowercase and all strung together. And of course, I'll post the link to her book and her website in the show notes on my website. But with that, let's get to the conversation with Kimberly. As I mentioned in the episode introduction, Kimberly is a meditation teacher in New York City who teaches at multiple groups and centers, um, and she released her first book, Steady, Calm and Brave, 25 Practices of Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis, this July. You know, I knew we were kindred spirits immediately when she quoted Deva from A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life on the first page of her book prior to the table of contents. She quoted the off off-quoted, may I be the doctor and the medicine and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. You know, healing the world at this moment in time seems like an impossible job, just as the four great vows or bodhisattva vows are seemingly impossible. um, Even though many have signed up for that job, so to speak, it does seem impossible, but we keep going. Um, And that's what Kimberly seems to want to do in her, the way she's contributed to to. Uh, the Bodhisattva path with her book. Um, later on in her book, in the preface, she explained what drove her to write this book. With those words, she cemented her intention in one of the essential truths of Buddhism that everyone is interconnected. We are all interbeing, as Titnat Han refers to it. And with that, she is encouraging us to look within to find strength. And to find the acceptance, we need to keep going. The words she wrote were, quote, When I saw my students, friends, and neighbors, and family afraid, disheartened, and sad, I wrote it in hopes that it will not only help them and you, reduce stress, deal with difficult emotions, and care for yourself and your loved ones during a painful time, but it will help you recognize your gifts your deep wisdom, compassion, and courage. These gifts, your words, your actions and presence can help reveal our healthy and equitable world. Remember, only everyone can save us and we're everyone, unquote. Kimberly offers some practical yet powerful medicine for all of us, shaken and unsteady from the events of the two of 2020 in her, book, in her book, which I consider a true bodhisattva offering. I will read one of the glowing reviews of her book, and this one from the Venerable Robina Corton. Quote, here is grounded kind, kind advice from a good spiritual friend. We need wise ways to think, especially now in these fraught times, because by helping ourselves, we can then help others. And so, with that, and without further delay on my part, let's get to the conversation with Kimberly. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Wendy, hello. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you.
0: <laughs> you're you're welcome. Um, as I mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, in our chat briefly before we started recording, um, I told you I read your beautiful book, and I have practiced with it too. It has been a help and a frequent go-to aid for my practice. So thank you. Um, And in one of your bios, I read that as a meditation teacher, you emphasize the power of compassion and kindness meditation, which I love. And that you call on your studies in both the Tibetan and Insight schools of Buddhism. But you also incorporate body-based mindfulness and self-compassion exercises as a certified mind-body therapist. So can you say a little more, uh, not about the mind-body therapist right now, but you can get into that, Uh, we can focus on that a little bit later, but a little bit more about your general sort of winding journey in life to where you are now and what brought you to say Buddhism and what brought you to teach Buddhism?
1: Wendy, yes. Yes, it always is a little winding. Mine is like most. Um, You know, Wendy, I trained um, to be a psychoanalyst years ago. Hmm. I did not finish the program. I felt that it was too narrow in its um, diagnosis of humans and human behavior. Um, And in psychoanalytic thought, it's uh, believed that We all have, you know, uh, these negative uh, drives that we're born with, aggression, sexuality, violence, and the best we can do as adults is manage our neuroses, you know, Mm -hmm. and it just never seemed, I I was helped by it. I had had um, a psychoanalyst for years who really did help me unpack a very difficult and chaotic childhood. Um, but then about, I guess it's about 12, 14 years ago now, I was, began having panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And they were very serious that I was having intrusive thoughts. Uh, I really thought perhaps I might have to be, um, you know, in an institution for a bit because I was mm-hmm. so unsteady. And I realized that I could tell you, Wendy, all the reasons why it was happening. From all of my psychotherapy, I had learned all of that, but I had z- like almost zero tools to deal with it. Right, and that is what led me into meditation and then Buddhism. Uh, the first reason being, there were a couple reasons, but the first reason being is that um, these techniques really can settle your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I started to learn how to work with thoughts and how to um, be with body sensations and be with difficult emotions in um, and those sensations to sort of build a bigger container, so I was not so overwhelmed. And I don't have panic attacks so often anymore, but I would not say they're gone. It's just that I'm not so afraid of them. And when they happen, I feel I have tools to manage them in a way that I didn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, the second reason I came to to Buddhism is, um, you know, it's almost the opposite of what I described that in psychoanalysis and all, and at least for a long time in psychological thought in the Western idea model. It was just that we had all these negative qualities and the best we could do was, you know, manage those negative qualities. Now, Buddhism really turns it upside down and they say, well, no, that's crazy we're born with these beautiful qualities and then they get obscured conditioning uh struggles defense mechanisms you know really cover up the fact that we have uh immeasurable qualities love wisdom joy compassion and that really drew me especially Shanti Deva. my goodness he the way he writes you know we all all of us could be the greatest bodhisattvas you know it's not outside of our reach and that really is inspiring to me and it's such a more hopeful and I believe a more accurate um, description of my experience of myself and of other people so that led me into you know studying and practicing Buddhism and I knew I wanted to teach because I really just it had been so helpful to me and I really just wanted to live in the Dharma and. So I started teaching, I started learning how to teach, uh, went through a training program and soon I found that one of the biggest obstacles for my students was, you know, they could learn mindfulness, you know, learn to just, you know, be mindful and, and they could learn um, information, you know, like all of the lots of teaching, they could retain all kinds of knowledge. But there was still this piece of unkindness to themselves, you know, like I should Mm -hmm. be meditating. Uh, I didn't do that yesterday. This was a terrible sit. You know, it was bringing that same, that same relationship to their practice. So I realized for me, um, I really wanted to um, help others reorient that and re-relate to themselves and so i began to focus more on um, offering self-compassion practices and um, metta meditation or maitri meditation in the sanskrit uh, meditations to um, recognize our beautiful qualities to gladden the mind and then that it just reminds us of our interdependence so i mean i know you're from zen wendy you know this, wisdom and compassion, they're the same coin. They're just different sides, you know, right. and you, you don't get one without the other. So, you know, practicing compassion, well, the wisdom starts to arise. Oh, I'm not so fixed. Oh, I'm connected <laughs> to everybody else, right? It's, and so that's one way in, and I have found for, for myself and for students, it, it can be really, um, it, it can be a useful way, an entry point
0: well there's a lot to unpack here um <laughs> and i have i have a million thoughts and i'm trying to going to try to sort them out and try to hit them one by one first i want to correct i'm actually not uh from zen um i, I does, it does it i do maybe it looks that way and many people get that confused i'm from um i actually practice like you i practice for for probably close to 20 years in the tibetan tradition um mostly. Uh, the, the Galupa tradition I studied with in for a long time. And then I, I practiced and taught in a, at a Drikun Kagyu center in Rochester. Um, so I do have a strong Tibetan background. And then I took my um, ministry training and, and teacher training with a group called uh, Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, which is Japanese- Mahayana, with the uh, with an overview of um, what's kind of the combination of mostly Shin, uh, which is a very Little known, if almost unknown, um, uh, uh, school of Buddhism, uh, Shin uh, Jodo Shinshu and and Zen combined. So yeah, there's a little Zen in there, but not primarily. So just wanted to, we have more in common than maybe what you think.
1: Yes, <laughs> Wendy, thank you for clarifying that. I had, I made an assumption that Bright John Center was a Zen center, and I don't know much about um, Shin Buddhism. I believe a yes. center opened in New York about five years ago.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's it, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's little known if, if almost virtually unknown in this country, even though it was one of the first, um, uh, Buddhist sort of schools and teachings of, of Buddhism to arrive in this country. Um, it, 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 it even beat Zen. Okay. Because, um, Japanese immigrants came and settled in Hawaii and then settled in the west and, and did farming and and then when they got round up with the great internment then they spread around and and some of them uh, opened up centers and my the teacher who the the center which I practice with um, came from my teacher's father who opened up the Chicago uh, Chicago Buddhist temple which was one of the first Buddhist temples in the Midwest and actually it was they they made it like a church so they would look, it was because it was right after uh, the internment. And so they wanted to look like they weren't a, a Japanese temple. Hey. They wanted to look like a church. Um, so that was the, the, we won't go too far there. But one of the things I really wanted to touch on is, is how you explained how you got to this compassion oriented practice and, and how Shantideva is a, as is, a, is sort of like a inspiration for you because actually, Shanti Deva, in the way of the Bodhisattva, and reading that, you can see he's very much in touch with all the ugly stuff that Western uh, psychoanalyst talks about, right? He's very much in touch with that. Um, but he knows that he can he can he can rise above because he, he has the tools. And just like you said, we aren't given the tools and not to put down west western um medicine but that it, it is similar just western psych, psychology and western medicine is similar they they're they're great scientists and they know what's they know what's not right with you <laughs> but they don't always tell you how to fix it if they can't fix it with a medicine or something like that and um one of the people that I am one of my, another one of my teachers is Greg Creech. I don't know if you know him. He's a, he's a great teacher with uh, in Eastern uh, uh, psychoanalyst, Eastern psychology and Morita therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with that, no. um, but he, he emphasizes that too. And so I love your, um, your focus on that, but you know what I really loved about your story, uh, Kimberly is, is that, you talked about how you came to buddhism through um it sounds like trauma um and i think many people do come to buddhism in my experience and and from my experience as a practitioner and as and a teacher as well many people come to buddhism through trauma i did too similarly um and and you talked about panic attacks. I also had panic attacks. Um, um, but what I loved is that you said they're not gone, but you there was that, 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 that sense of um, active acceptance, which is a term from Arita therapy, active acceptance, um, In other words, it's not like avoidance. It's not like, oh, I just have to put up with this. It's much more like this is how it is. Like, you know, the first, you know, the first of the eightfold path, seeing things as they are, right? Um, The right, right view. Um, So you can tell that the Dharma is right there and it is your primary tool. And I wish more people um, could 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 get to this, you know, like you, you hit on that. They, they meditate and then they say, Oh, I can't do this. I'm awful at it. blah blah, blah. Um, so do you want to say more about what your experience has been in teaching through this, through these techniques and through this methodology and, and through your honesty?
1: Yes. Yes. Well, when I first started teaching, um, I stuck with kind of a, a mindfulness and, um, uh, Practice awareness of breath, maybe a sh- right. you know shamatha, and maybe opening up a little bit to mindfulness practice, and and that was great. You know, we I did that for about four years of my teaching, taught a lot of beginners. I I feel that it was successful, and you know people reported feeling more relaxed, feeling less stressed. You know, many started to have more of an interest in their mind, right, and Buddhist thought. And then as I practiced um, compassion meditations, which was not my initial um, practice when I first started learning Buddhism, I learned, um, like I said, uh, shamatha meditation through um, Mm -hmm. Tibetan school. You know, first you learn to steady your breath and your mind. with kind of a focused awareness right and then Mm -hmm. i was learning visualizations um so i was teaching mainly just the 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 one-pointed awareness breath meditations and as i then about five years into my practice adopted metta or loving kindness practice which I learned from Sharon Salzberg, the teacher Sharon Salzberg. And I started practicing it, and I started to see a softening in myself, a softening toward um, who I was, toward the feelings I had. And this word or this phrase, active acceptance, you know, it's very beautiful. That that notion, uh, I've heard it said allowing or being with right? But that mm-hmm. not fighting with one's experience. Right? A, a teacher once said, not going to war with yourself. <laughs> that I, that was so unknown to me, even throughout my practice. And that started to occur just sort of naturally through the, the compassion practices. And, and then I began to feel confident enough to offer them to students. And what was amazing to me is people would be transformed very quickly. And what I mean was, unlike, you know, teaching just breath meditation, concentration or mindfulness, when people came and did meta practice with me, I mean, I had one man come in, he was in a breakup, he was so filled with hate toward the person who broke up with him. Non meditator came to I used to teach every Friday night in the city third Friday night he came up to me and said you know I just want you to know I do not feel as hateful as I did and I thought oh that's wow that to me that's amazing I've never heard that in in mindfulness practice now I don't know how concentrated his mind was or anything like that but it didn't matter to me because somehow he was you know healing and relating to himself and the world in a different way I had one student who was a very stressed out NYU student a very young man maybe 20 Uh, and again he was at the Friday nights and maybe his third session on a Friday night when we practice metta or Maitri practice the conventional way or the traditional way from the Buddhist canon is that you offer these phrases to yourself to someone you love to um, someone who's been good to you, to strangers, and to enemies. So we used to practice all of them these Friday nights. And the student, uh, maybe it was his first second session, he said, you know, I can't think of a stranger. Now, we live (laughs) in New York City, and he was going to NYU, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, really. And
1: what I realized later after getting to know him, he was so stressed out. He was so anxious. Like, he couldn't even see anybody around him. Right. Wow. So about six months, he stayed for a long time, and about six months into it, he said to me, "You know, today I really saw the stranger, and I really felt like, wow, well, I'd like to help you." That's to me, that's amazing. So these practices, all pra- all of the Buddhist practices, are um, useful and great tools. And you know, they say there are eighty four thousand doors. Right. right. So I am not suggesting one way is better than another. Um, I'm just saying that this particular practice has been super helpful to me and, and for some people it can be a real way in.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I do think, um, although Sharon Salzberg seems to be the master teacher of a meta practice, um, it, in my mind, I, I mean, I, there could be many, many others, but, um, I think she popularized it in a way that many have not. And, um, I still don't think, and I could be wrong, but from my, you know, just, just, you know, broad observation, um, it's, it's only been recently that Meta has sort of started to, uh, leak its way into, um, the conversation about Buddhist practices, right? Um, most people, uh, you know, want to get blissed out, uh, <laughs> or they have this sort of, a a weird image of what a meditator, a Buddhist meditator, is, or what a Buddhist is, um, um, and and it's all you know, sitting there blissed out. And then when they try meditation, they're they're the farthest thing from blissed out. Um, but even if they get to the point where they are a meditator and it's working for them, um, the meta practice, I think, and maybe it's our culture. I'm not sure, and I'd like your thoughts on this. Is um, why my experience is that meta meta practice is like kind of uncomfortable for people in the West.
1: Yes, Do you see. Yes, is that true? I think you're totally right, Wendy. And you're I believe you're absolutely spot on that. It's only in the last few years that you, you hear a little bit more and more about it. Um, I know that I came to it. I don't know, like a dozen years ago, 14 years ago, and immediately thought, well, this is not the real deal. The real deal is you know like i'm gonna learn vajrayana practices that's the real deal or i'm gonna you know right i'm gonna do nature of mind um and so i really had a bias against it and i think it was because it made me uncomfortable uh i remember feeling like well this is stupid why would i wish myself well when there's all these people struggling you know um and in many places, it was also taught as as sort of the diminutive uh, practice. Yeah, did you notice that too, Wendy? Like not explicitly.
0: No, not explicitly. But I do think, well, especially if you come from Vajrayana, which we both do, um, it, it was all about nature of mind, or you know, you know, achieving that oneness with the with the guru in your visualization and so forth, and 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 it was all about being something other than you. In my mind, that's how it felt. I know I'm misrepresenting it. So I understand. All, I, I all had you...
1: similar Wendy. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't want all the Vajrayana practitioners to jump down my throat here, but um that's how it felt to me. And in that in that feeling, I, I I never could get past that truly. That's one of the reasons why I left Vajrayana. And now I see it is not about Vajrayana, it was about me. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, I think it is sort of was or was thought more or taught as a diminutive or, you know, lesser than um, practice uh, than the nature of mind or even even insight meditation in Vipassana. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. And I have had other people say, actually, I even heard Dan Harris on um, 10% Happier. Mm-hmm. You familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. He, he he learned uh, MetaPractice from Sharon Salzberg, who I think is one of his teachers on his app. Um, but <clears throat> he talked about how weird it was, how f- weird it felt to like wish himself, <laughs> may he be happy, right? <laughs> it's like how uncomfortable that felt. And the more and more he practiced with it, the more comfortable it got. But, you know, some people I think can never overcome that first weirdness of it, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think so too. Or they, like me, I practiced other things and then came back to it, you know, and realized, oh, okay, maybe there is something here for me um, in that practice. But yes, and sometimes, you know, I would go to sits with different teachers in the city and, you know, they would lead a mindfulness and then end with a few minutes of metta so it was just always like well this isn't you wouldn't really do this as your practice um and and it's interesting you say about the uh, being uncomfortable because i think that is that's a big part of it and that discomfort is it's a warning really that it, it you know uh. if we're living in a society in which we are uncomfortable offering ourselves you know uh, um wishes of happiness is of good health which is of you know having a, a easeful life there's a problem
0: <laughs> yeah and that's so true i mean i never heard it termed that way but that's ex- that you're you're spot on you actually opened my mind to this it actually kind of blew the doors open exactly right that that is probably uh uh a, a huge warning flag. I remember one of my, t- one of the Tibetan lamas that I took teachings with used to talk about the American um, mind and um, how different it was fr- from the Tibetan mind. And uh, one thing that struck me is uh, somebody asked a question about um, uh, it was in, a, in the question and answer period after a group of teachings. And so, somebody in the group asked a question about um, what about if, if you have. Um, you know, problems with, um, uh, your own self image and, and that, that you, you, you don't feel good about yourself and, um, you know, how would you address that? And I remember the Lama saying, um, it's very egocentric. (laughs) It, it drove, it made people nuts in, 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 in the group. But I think that's also related to this is like, um, we are so focused on improvement, right? Um, Even in, in our work culture and in our actual personal culture on, you know um, getting on the Peloton and, and uh, um, in uh, performance metrics within, within corporate organizations and improvement is the, is the goal, you know, uh, comp- compassion and uh, uh kindness is wouldn't even enter into the, into the equation
1: yeah yeah exactly and and that idea of it being egocentric it's as if we either are are thinking we're so great, we're so grandiose, we're so narcissistic, and that's one way to just be caught up in self or we're the worst. We're terrible. We need to right. get better. I, you know, I'm not fast enough, smart enough, rich enough. And that's, it's just, again, another side of a, the coin in this
0: Right. Yeah. I, uh, in working with uh, the Greg Creech who I mentioned earlier, uh, Greg, I'm sorry, I keep dinging you here today, but, um, in working with Greg Creech, I asked him about perfectionism because I have problems with perfectionism. And he said, um, he said, uh, that's, that's a subtle sign of egoism and you got to get over yourself. Mm-hmm. And it, it was such a slap in the face, but it is, it, it it's just what you're talking about. And boy, you know, this all, I know we're kind of going around in circles on this, but one thing I want, I sort of want to grab the tail of this and, and drag it somewhere else and say, okay, here we are in the middle of this pandemic. And I, I think many people have learned a lot of lessons in the last, geez, how many months has it been? Seven months.
1: Seven months. Uh,
0: yeah. 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 It's, it's scary, isn't it? Um, it uh, so in seven months, you know, one thing we've certainly learned about is that we have to, or maybe we've learned or we're trying to learn, is, is getting comfortable and making friends with uncertainty. Um, uh, that, that, and like, it's like what we're learning is the three marks of existence, right? Not because we asked to learn it because it's being forced down our throat in these mm-hmm. last seven months, right? Um, so it's like we're, we're learning impermanence, you know, um, and, and we're learning interdependence and we're learning that uh, uh, nothing is as discreet and steady as we thought it was or emptiness, including ourselves. So there, you know, we have to learn that the future is uncertain or that there is no future in the way that we think it is. So grabbing what we were talking about and pulling it into what we're dealing with in these last seven months, um, just one thing that really has helped, and if we can do it, although it doesn't look like people are doing it because of the divisive nature of our country right now, and maybe it's because of the election, but one thing that I think Some of us are learning is to open our hearts to the other.
1: I think so too. I do, Wendy, and I think um, I think as this pandemic continues and the United States is does not have a, a an appropriate response to it, I believe that people just ordinary people are seeing how this divisiveness is preventing all of us from taking care of each other.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Right. We're all affected when the president gets the, the, you know, the coronavirus, everyone's affected by that. And we can all see it. And if we're going to be divisive about it and either deny it and say, it's not happening or, you know, most of us know that's not true. Almost all of us. And that, um, digging in our heels and and saying you're right, you're wrong, who's to blame? It's it has not been an effective response, and a lot of people are suffering. We're all suffering, some really badly, right? Um, so I I agree with you, Wendy. I think there is you know has been a shift toward opening our hearts. Also, people feel very grateful right now. Grateful if you didn't get sick. Grateful if you did and you recovered. Grateful if you have a job. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and grateful for the small things that we do have that we we took advantage of um, uh, when we were rushing around doing all the other things that we can't do now, right? Absolutely,
1: (laughs) Uh, yep. That we took for granted
0: yeah, I've had so many people tell me that they actually noticed the change of seasons in a way they never noticed it before, like the the greening around them in the trees in the spring. I think you even mentioned that in your book now that I Dude, think about it. yeah, <laughs> okay. so um, um, and i've and I had a lot of people telling me that because they never had the time to look. Yeah. They never had the time to see the beauty of it. and 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 also, it's like one of the things that is, is taught a lot of people, I know it's taught me. You know, we're always learning everything over and over again. One of the things it's taught me is that uh, it's, it's like I, I read a, a, a counselor say that you need to be able to hold hope in one hand and despair in the other. Right. And we are living in a time where we're holding both of those things. And and it, it's 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 a, it's really um, uh, a disconnect, a mental disconnect. Yet at the same time, if you look at how you're living your life. It's like, so you can be freaked out. You can do be doing doom doom scrolling during the night. You cannot have any sleep, but the next morning you can get up and take a walk and feel completely filled with gratitude and bliss. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, some people I think are noticing that. I don't know. I think so too. Um, so now I want to, I know earlier, I, I mentioned that I have been practicing with your book. Um, and in practicing with your book, I was particularly struck by the wisdom that uh, really, it I that's the word wisdom, guiding the chapter choices for the 25 chapters and practices. Um, they were all so spot on, so applicable to the fears and insecurities and anxiousness that almost all of us feel except for maybe the most disenfranchised who are just, you know, traumatized by it all. You know, I've written a book and I know from experience that organizing and structuring the writing was the most challenging part of getting the book ready for release, except for editing, of course, I'm sure you will agree with me on that. That was the worst. Um, But how did you arrive at these particular practices and your insight into the issues they address Especially since in my think it must thinking it must have been so early into the pandemic to have to, to enable to have this book released you know four months into the virus arriving at the united in the united states how how did you how did you come up with this?
1: <laughs> you know wendy it is um one of those moments where you hear authors or artists say you know the work just revealed itself. I almost didn't write it. It was a moment like that. I had been for the last couple of years working on what I, in my head, call my real meditation book. Um, it's a, you know, a, a much larger book and it, you know, gives a history and about different techniques and Buddhism and et cetera. So I'd been working on that book for some time with an editor and we were in the process of um, doing the proposal and then the pandemic hit and it somehow didn't even seem important you know how we all felt back in March and I set it aside and then um, about the end of April I was thinking gosh I, I have to maybe I'll share what I'm working on you know and I asked that same editor who's been such a help and she said yes why don't you write a little something you know maybe it'll be like a tiny little book or a pdf or something so you know I sat down to write it and what I wrote was Not so much instructions for others, but sharing my own experience and how I used these practices and how they might be useful, you know, to others, to friends, family, readers. Um, So I really was sort of in a moment of writing contemporaneously uh, exactly what was happening to my experience, almost like a reporter. And then, you know, compiling it into a book, Uh, a friend kind of helped me order it. And I can't say, Wendy, that we had a a real deliberate way. We just sort of organically. Now, this was at the end of May, early Mm -hmm. June, when the book was finished and right before editing. And so at that time, there was a sense like, oh, you know what, gosh, maybe this is all going to go away i don't know if you yeah. remember that but it was like right towards the end of may early june It was like huh wow well yeah it might just be all wrapped up by the end of summer and i remember thinking huh well maybe the book will be obsolete very quickly <laughs> well sadly it is not and it's you know, this has continued um but i don't i can't speak to exactly and i'm glad that you found that it was helpful the way you know the the uh, way the chapters are laid out one of the things alice the um editor said to me was, you know what, Kim, um, you can make it so people can just open it and they can go to chapter six if they're feeling filled with dread, you know, that they, that people could skip around and use it as just a toolkit.
0: Yeah, that actually, that's how I was using it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly how I was using. Mm-hmm. It. And then that's what I love, because in your table of contents, you you know, you gave it a, a you gave it a chapter title, but you then, gave the practice a title, which really was cool, I thought. Um, uh, like, I'm going to read a few of them. Is it giving too much away if I read no, a few No, not these? at all, Wendy. How wonderful. <laughs> okay. It's like, um, uh, you know, just chapter one, It's harm and healing. And then was the chapter title. And then the practice title was gladden your mind. And then um, when you feel helpless was one chapter title. And then it was opening your heart. And then... One of my particular problems, which I kept referring to, was when it's us against them, <laughs> and then us and them was the practice. Um, I I I think that was just wonderful because it's just it's sort of like oh oh here's what I'm feeling today. Maybe I should practice with this this morning. Um, so I just love that. And another thing I want to do, if you don't mind, is highlight uh, one chapter as a, an example of how down to earth and real it was. And I see now how come that was is because you were just reporting as a reporter on your own life, right?
1: It really was. Yes.
0: Well, chapter three is called when your family is making you crazy. (laughs) And the associated practice is I see you anger. Just reading the titles gave me a giggle, but it is so helpful and you start the chapter with this and i want to i want to share this quote with others because i think they'll get a sense of how real and fun this book is fun yet helpful because i say it's fun because it's so honest and 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 to me honesty is like a a high level buddhist attainment right <laughs> so you start your chapter with this quote about 3 weeks into the pandemic after being at home together 24 hours a day i realized that my husband is the most annoying person in the world unquote sorry husband and then you go on to say that quote when you finally sat down to talk to each other about this he told me he thought i was the most annoying person in the world unquote and this led to have uh, led you to suggest some practice of that around private time for yourself and for your partner and for other family members while offering the reassurance that it's normal and perfectly okay to get angry under these circumstances in you know up until the point that you're actually screaming at each other and the practice you offered was brilliant in teaching how to uh how mindful how to be mindfulness of anger and how it arises in your body and how it Feels in your body. And then your practice added the phrase from Titnat Han, I see you, anger, and I'm not going to leave you, unquote. So this then leads us back into hone in on how you incorporated both self compassion and sort of metaphor yourself and body awareness into all of your practices, maybe not all of them, but most of them, there was it was a strong emphasis on body awareness. Can you talk more about what seems to be your focus? We know we, we touched on it a little at the beginning of both of those areas of self-compassion and body-based mindfulness. Um, I know those are essentially the primary, they seem, and I might, might be putting words into your mouth, the primary focus of your teachings. And um And did you incorporate this body-based mindfulness more because you were speaking to an audience who was essentially going through trauma, or is this how you pretty much do it now?
1: This is how I pretty much do it now. Um, Earlier I mentioned that students um, often will approach their practice as um, something they have to, do and they're not doing it right and they're not doing it properly and yet they're very good at you know bringing in information and knowledge um, and part of that I believe stems from being out of touch with the body um, in part um, mm-hmm. because to be um, embodied I mean that's that's part of the point of, of Buddhist practice that the mind-body is it they're not separate and the body gives us information um, about what we're feeling, what we're thinking. Uh, it's it's wisdom to know what's happening. There's an old Zen saying that says something like, "Wisdom is eating when you're hungry and sleeping when you're tired."
0: Well, mm-hmm. how many
1: of us do that, you know? <laughs> um, and so one way that you can quickly tap into if you're hungry or tired is to just start to pay attention to your body and i think wendy that in our modern life we've lost touch with our body i would guess that 2600 years ago when the buddha was teaching or you know a thousand years ago when tibetans and zen people were training that they were not so far removed um life was very different so but now we've somehow become very heady you know, all the information and much of what we consume has to do with stories and news and information, and we, plus we really value it. Uh, so we're really out of touch with our bodies, I think. I, I have been, and it was something I really needed to learn, and a, a lot of people I know um, struggle with it. So that was one of the reasons for this, especially this book and what was going on, is a lot of what I was feeling was super embodied. It was a terrifying time, and, and it still is in many in more ways even now. And to one way to demonstrate compassion is to simply be with what's arising. And what you said earlier about, what was that phrase, active acceptance?
0: Active acceptance, yeah. That mm-hmm.
1: has to also be applied to body sensation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of it, too being a big, a big enough container. Yeah. I have anger and I could sit with it and feel what that's like, but I don't have to throw it at you because I can't sit with it. You know?
0: Right. Right. Well, you know, I'm wondering, and this is just an idle thought that I just had. And, and so we don't have to go too far, but just because you, you shared your personal experience of having panic attacks and I had panic attacks too, where I can, I can empathize entirely. Um, Did you think you got more and you may not have an answer to this because I don't think we always know um, the trajectory of our lives as if it was a logical thing to figure out. Um, But did you, do you think you went into sort of this mind body practitioner area along with your mindfulness practitioner and Buddhist teacher area because of listening to your body during panic attacks?
1: Absolutely. Wendy, absolutely. And it's, you know, a teacher told me years ago, something like, if you can heal a suffering that you have, then you could help someone else heal that same suffering. And he said something like, if I broke my leg, I could, you know, give you good advice. If you broke your leg, you know, how I went through it, how, right, how I managed it, how I did my physical therapy. He said, but if, if I didn't have that suffering, I couldn't really help you with it. And he was talking about our own, you know, our personal uh, struggles and that as a teacher, we can use what has helped us heal, help others. So, absolutely, Wendy. You know, I had been very, um, it had given me a lot of power and wisdom and compassion for me to come into my body when as someone who had had a tra- you know, traumatic childhood, um, I wasn't really in it.
0: Right, right. Because we're running, if we have trauma, um, and I know not all panic attacks are caused by trauma. I, I mean, I don't know that for a fact. I don't know anything for a fact. But I mean, I'm guessing not all panic attacks are caused by trauma, but I think many many are. Um, we're typically, when we have stuff like that, we run away. The last thing we're we instinctively do is go in there and look at it. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, I remember my I was working with a psychoanalyst when I had panic attacks and and I I only had looked back at this now, right? Like when I had some trauma re-triggered during the pandemic. And I only looked back at her advice during that time. And this was a long time ago. I was in my twenties and, you know, I'm, I'm like almost 68 now. And I remember her advice as clearly as if it was yesterday, she said, Uh, when you feel a panic attack coming on don't don't fight it okay don't fight it except that and she i mean wow that was so wise it It was was
1: wise when you
0: were lucky yeah yeah she said go with it and then she would tell me she said then go out the door and run around the block take a tennis ball and throw it against a wall just do something with it don't run away from it and what beautiful advice, because it made a huge difference. Although she put me on some drugs at the same time, anti-anxiety drugs, but what a huge difference that, that little technique that she gave me to use to, and that was like embodying, right? Embodying. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's the, the beautiful feeling. advice. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah, that's uh so I have had experience with that, but you know, that was so long ago and I, I'm. I was. I found myself totally distant from it more recently. Like you said, we're just not in touch with our body. We're just not in touch. Um, and I'll tell you an, another little story, and and be, I you know, share this with everybody. Um, and I I don't mind making fun of myself, so you can make fun of me too if you'd like. Um, but body based mindfulness is not something I'm too familiar with in personal. Buddhist or meditation practice. Like I said, even though I had that experience, it wasn't with me today. And so at the risk of sounding like Dan Harris of the 10% Happier Podcast fame, who talks about things being woo woo, right? I have, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have felt a little uncomfortable, a little woo woo, um, doing practices like putting your hand on your heart and talking to your inner child. You know, I had a good experience with that, uh, about the same time I was reading your book, uh, using one for connecting with safety if feeling triggered triggered by old trauma. So actually, I really thought it was in your book, but I couldn't locate it. But it was the same point, you talk about, throughout your practices, about putting your hand on your heart while doing the guided p- meditations in the book. Can you talk more about this?
1: Yes, and, you, and that made me laugh, Wendy, because you're not alone and feeling like, oh, this is woo-woo. Um, I, I I guess this was about almost 10 years ago. It was one of the first students I worked with privately. And someone called me, the wife of this um, corporate lawyer, his partner in a law firm here in New York in his 50s. His wife was, knew me through yoga. She said, could you give private lesson to my husband? Sure, he comes over. And from start to end, it was, uh, it was terrible. It was a good lesson in how to be a teacher because he, was, he sat down and he had his Blackberry and he kept looking at it and he kept sending messages to people. Um, then he kept rushing me. Then I guided him through a meditation. And at some point I said, um, place your hand on your heart. I think I said, place your hand on your heart center. And he said, What the hell is a heart center? What are you talking about here? (laughs) Um, Then he proceeded to tell me he was going to be doing his meditation while he was in the um, steam room. So he I just have to say as a young teacher that really taught me a lesson I you know to if any teachers are out there listening take your seats tell someone to put their phone down take charge when you need to Um, but in any case I realized very quickly that saying those sort of things or asking people to even touch themselves um, might seem strange or wooey or weird, you know? And right. for that reason, A, I say we'll just try it or don't do <laughs> it. Like, either way is fine. But the reason behind it is it gives you, if you're feeling anxious, well, if you're feeling anxious, that means you're generally in your head, you're caught up in thoughts about the future. That may or may yeah. not happen. And yeah. touching yourself, feeling your feet, taking a breath, all of those will bring you a little bit less in your head and more embodied. And to be embodied is to be in reality, right? You can't breathe yesterday or tomorrow. You're breathing now.
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: Uh, and, but, and it's true. But our thoughts get us, you know, I mean, you, I know you know uh, how, how powerful they can be. Know, and the body can really bring us out of that it's a tool
0: now um in in your s- psycho and a- a- psycho and what was what were you trained to be a psychoanalyst psycho analyst, yep okay okay um in that training <clears throat> you, you weren't probably far enough along to get to those sort of techniques right it in was more traditional like
1: traditional psychoanalysis, which I was studying. They didn't have those kind of techniques, right? It was about, um, there were wonderful techniques in it, you know, mirroring your patient. Um, there was, a, um, helping them gain insights, uh, transference and mm-hmm. it was really wonderful. There was dream work, a lot of unconscious, um, work, but in that particular, um, field of psychology there was in traditionally there's not so much body based um, work
0: right because by its very nature western psychoanalysts is all about the head right (laughs) yes it, it really is even if there was childhood trauma that uh was related to the body it still was all about the head and processing it and, and that sort of thing. And I I think the beauty of Buddhism is that ability or that, that the teachings of disconnecting from stories, you know, it's like the second arrow, right. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not what happens to you that causes suffering. Suffering happens. It's how you deal with it. And, and in, your your ability to like keep bringing it home in every one of these practices, and and I would I my my guess is anybody who initially found the the first heart over uh, hand over the heart way too woo woo they may if then they look ahead and they see it's all over the place they may never go forward but like you said just try it how can it hurt you right it can't hurt you if you you just need to try it
1: yeah. Just need to try it and also notice your judgments. You know, that's just another story. They're all just stories. Yeah. You know, and we're all just reifying our stories all the time. Well, if you can take a deep breath and, you know, focus on right now, right, the sounds entering your ears. Well, now you're not in a story.
0: Right. This is what's happening right i I remember teaching someone last year this was prior to the pandemic but she was having um reliving trauma from from an accident um and in and i just there's just no way to get her to not keep telling stories you know Uh, and sort of like your 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 guy that you just talked about on his blackberry but she just kept saying but what about this person who said this? And but what about this person? I it was I just couldn't get a rope back into the now, right? So I I asked her to like look at the sky and tell me what she saw, uh, <clears throat> and then she started describing a cloud, and then she started to, and so I was t- teaching her how to bring that inter- in internally, no matter where she was in the thought of the sky, and which is kind of a Tibetan. A pr- typical Tibetan practices, open sky, that kind of thing. And so I was teaching that. And I remember her saying, and this cracked me up. She said, you mean this is like meditation? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, pretty much. Yeah. What you just did was you were aware of your thoughts, but then you got, you got centered in, in the present instead of your stories, you, you let them go. You let, cause what stories do is they come in and it, they will go away all by themselves. You don't, you know, as long as you don't hang on to them and and take them for a ride, right. <laughs> Have them take you for a ride. She was so shocked. And I, and this is a person who's, who's quite worldly and who, who, who considered herself relatively spiritual. But I think this is so typical. Um, and, and sometimes it, it, makes me sad (laughs) because I think people don't approach Buddhist practice because they think it's like they can't do it or, or yet it, when it really is so down to earth, Uh, do you ever feel sad like that? (laughs) Yes, me. I
1: agree with you. There are so many pervasive misconceptions about meditation in general, and certainly about Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. And the idea that somehow we would have this blank mind with no thoughts, you know, that's one I hear a lot. Oh, I can't do it. I have too many thoughts or, right. or that, or there, you know, as you just experienced with this student, it's about the quality of attention, about honing your attention about being able, I mean, part of freedom is choosing where you get to place your attention. Most of us, that's what conditioning does and habit. It just brings us our attention back to the same place, but we can rewire that. Um, And that is by learning how to direct our attention. And that's beautiful to ask someone just to look at the sky. It's right there. So immediate, it's happening, you know? Right. Yeah. That's really wonderful. And that embodies you right away.
0: It doesn't, you know, what you just said is it gives it something about it. It, it gives you hope because you can at any time redirect your attention. And that, that was just the uh antidote to my sadness. Thank you. Um <laughs> Because um, you know, Buddhist practice is full of antidotes because it's the doctor, as we talked about what Shanti Davis said, but you know, <clears throat> this this makes me feel great because i do think it is very hopeful and you know in in circling back to the pandemic a bit because i think we we, we do need to 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 acknowledge it as as that <clears throat> you know i think this, there's this sort of for me there's like this grand potential for people to find this out this the you know even in their own selves even if they don't Re Buddhism or anything. But I've had a lot of people who've written to me said they discovered my podcast because they were looking for something to make themselves feel better during the pandemic. And that's the kind of thing that gives me hope. It's like your book. It's like people, people may come to this through the pandemic and look back and say, wow, what a wonderful experience that pandemic was. Like if we, if and when we get past it and wherever we end up when we do, right? I mean, it's, it's like your trauma, in essence, brought you to where you are now, your traumatic childhood and your, and your later panic attacks. So this may be the blessing, you know, one of the silver linings.
1: Absolutely, Wendy. I mean, this is, I mean, from Buddhist point of view, everything's an opportunity, right? Every moment. Even a terrible loss, grief, sickness, is an opportunity to uh, practice your attention, your compassion, using your wisdom. Like you said, seeing the the what's real. Impermanence is real. Emptiness is real. Suffering is real. Cause and effect are real. Um, and I was, as you can read from my book, I was as distraught as everybody else. And it took me a while. It took me a few months into this pandemic to say, Kim, this is where you are. This is where you live. This is how it's going right now. And your opportunity is, you know what? It's probably unlikely you're going to be in your house as much as you are right now for as long of a period of time. So how can you make that worthwhile in your work, in my practice? You know, it's like a retreat.
0: Yeah. Um, right.
1: And you know, I'm very lucky. It's not that I'm stuck in my apartment and someone's tormenting me, or I'm hungry. I'm. I have a place to live, and it's fine. So for me, I really had to learn to shift my um, my relationship to it. I kept trying to get out. And yes. right. Very
0: good. Trying yeah, to get yeah. out. And
1: on a on a base level, that's what dukkha is, right? Suffering. We're trying to get out all the time of wow. this experience and there's nowhere to go this is it he,
0: that, oh that's that that that's the perfect place to end this conversation because you wrapped it up i mean that that is it's all about grasping right it's the first noble truth yeah. it's uh trying to get out is grasping it's pushing away right yeah. um we're we're still we're still focused on it but we're pushing it away and the only way out is to acknowledge the fact that we're here and find a way to deal with it yep. right accept what is that active acceptance accept what is and as my teacher says and then keep going just beautiful. keep going
1: exactly beautiful so,
0: um now kimberly did i is there anything that you want to say that i didn't bring up or any anything you'd like to wrap it up with
1: you know the, i do want to quickly just touch on um karma and i'm saying this oh, because yeah oh my goodness, one, you've probably noticed lately, everybody's talking about people getting what they deserve and karma and, oh, karma's (laughs) a bitch and, oh my gosh, it makes my hair stand on end. So one of the things that's part of reality is that cause and effect are real, right? right? Every word you speak, all your thoughts, all your behaviors have outcomes. And that's what karma means. Doesn't mean you do something good, you get something good. Doesn't mean you do something bad, you get something bad. It means that you affect yourself and others through your actions. And when you're deluded, your actions will be harmful and cause harmful effects, or most likely will be. And when you're not deluded and you're in reality, then you can use your actions to benefit people and not harm people. that's, That's all that karma means. I guess I just wanna say that because people have such a misconception of it
0: oh i'm glad you brought that up and yes if if you spend any time on facebook instagram twitter lately it's um yeah we know what you're talking about we won't go down that political um alley but it's so true that you know there are certain things that do drive me nuts and i i've done podcasts about this first of all when people say um how do buddhists think about this and it's like, oh, for goodness sakes, well, Buddhists, <laughs> Buddhists don't have any one way of thinking about anything, first of all. And second, they I mean, they think about it however however their karma makes them think about it, right? What the causes and conditions that create their thinking. And, and also to open that up a bit, because I think you're, I'm so glad you brought it up, but to open that up a bit, it's like, I keep telling people because... Because of the divisiveness, you know, I, I, I was a crazy, nutcase, angry and, uh, person about anti-maskers, right? Um, I will admit that. I could, mm-hmm. I could not get it out of my head. It was like I was obsessed and angry. And I, and I had to deal with that anger. Uh, and one of the ways I dealt with that anger... Well, I'll just tell you quickly, I have a systemic lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. So I am severely immune compromised. So I don't go anywhere. And so to see people casually not wear masks always felt like they were out to kill me. <laughs> you know, it was, it was very personal to me. And and I had to deal with that. And one of the ways I dealt with that is 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 from like a, a sort of a grand karmic uh, overview or review if 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 I was brought up the way say this crazy anti-masker with a QAnon t-shirt on and you know waving a flag uh, and with a Trump bunker, bumper sticker if that person if I was brought up with the same exact causes and conditions I'd be them so I have compassion for them how could I not right so thank you <laughs> for that karma uh karma 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 yes um uh, so uh, and is there anything else you'd like to bring up or
1: no i just want to thank you this has really been such a joy to oh yes to talk I- with you
0: you, and you you too, Kimberly, I, I so much enjoyed it. I, and everybody's got to get that book, Steady, Calm, and Brave, 25 Practices of Resilience and Wisdom in a Crisis. And also, we all look forward to the masterpiece that you're working on um, that you put aside because of the pandemic. I'm sure at some point you're going to be back at it if you're not at it already. Um, now now that this thing isn't over, right? <laughs> uh, so thank you so much, Kimberly. And, um, it was a joy to have you on the show.
1: Bye, Wendy. Bye, everybody.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kimberly, and will check out her book. If there was ever a time we needed to learn how to be steady, calm, and brave, it is now. And don't forget, I'm looking for input from Everyday Buddhism podcast listeners on how you are finding ways to be steadier, calmer, and braver. I've received a few emails but would love to hear from more of you about how you are coping. Where have you found support? What are some of the resilience building practices or activities you have incorporated in your lives that have helped you walk through the troubled times we're living in? Please email your insights or comments to Wendy Shinyo at everyday dash buddhism dot com that's Wendy Shinyo all strung together lowercase at everyday dash buddhism dot com with the subject line how I'm coping. I will reach out to schedule a time to talk with you possibly and then possibly schedule a podcast interview with you and a couple other listeners. I look forward to hearing from you. And so that's it for this episode. And as a reminder, as usual, don't forget that there are many ways to join me and others in either the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha, which meets every other week virtually via Zoom on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, or our free public open Sangha, which will now be held every month meeting virtually via Zoom on Wednesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. with Levi Shinyo Sensei. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.